Saturday. It's July 30th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, it's the last Saturday of July. Summer is in full steam. Got to make the most of it. I'm feeling very feisty today, Michael. My inspiration is going to be Rishi Sunak v. Liz Trust, the BBC debate. Get ready. Does that mean one of us is going to pass out and... As a moderator and just the whole thing's going to end. I don't know if you saw the news last night. Tell us what happened. They were in the middle of their debate. The two of them are the final two candidates to, uh, they'll face a runoff in, in to decide who becomes the next prime minister. And halfway through the debate, it's getting very heated exchange. And there was a loud kathunk off camera. They looked over and... Liz Truss started to walk off stage and uh, the camera went black and it turns out that the moderator had fainted off offset. Was this because of the heat? You mean the, the, the weather or the heat in the debate? Probably Inter- neither. Interpret it as you wish. Interpret it as you wish, yes. But if you want to interpret how these two candidates are going to do, Patrick Kidd in this week's issue has a great column sort of looking at the similarities between the two conservative candidates and also the great differences between Truss and Rishi and uh, essential reading for those of you in the U.S. who maybe need being brought up to speed and those of you in the U.K. who want some great perspective. It's th- there's, there's a lot of great details in Patrick's piece, one of which is just to remind everyone, this will be the 15th prime minister Queen Elizabeth will come face to face with. The, the, the choice between the two, on one hand, it's very similar to what we had. They're both graduates of Oxford University, but as Patrick points out, they both have very different paths to that uh, institution. Rishi, if he's elected, would be the first prime minister born in the 1980s. He would be the first non-white prime minister and would be, uh, he's believed to be the richest British member of parliament there ever has been. Liz Truss is 47 and she would be Britain's third female prime minister, but she comes from a Saudi middle-class left-wing family, but then she evolved into a conservative. We should just do what all the Instagram influencers are doing, Michael, and just escape to Italy. Well, speaking of influencers, I don't know if you saw this, but for some reason, I'm the one who follows all things Kardashian this week, but Kim and other members of the Kardashian family started harshing on Instagram because they've changed their to be a little bit more like TikTok. And they've started putting more reels on the site. And the Kardashians took to Instagram and said, Instagram needs to be more like Instagram. And this even prompted the head of Instagram to reply and say, yeah, I guess maybe you're right. But I thought the most interesting piece of news this week is actually in airmail, a story by Cassie David about a new, new, new social media app called be Real, which everyone under 22 seems to be on, but most people over 22 have never heard of it. And it is marketing itself as kind of the anti-Instagram. So how does it differ from Instagram? I mean, what makes it so special? Okay. According to Cassie, it works like this. Every day at a random time, you get a push notification, one that she says looks a lot like an Amber Alert, letting you know it's time to, quote, be real. And then you have exactly two anxiety-filled minutes to upload a photo of yourself and whatever it is you're doing that moment. So most of it ends up with people like sitting on couches. So there's nothing glamorous. They're not sort of like swanning around European locales or making themselves with, with duck faces uh, all decked out in dresses. So it's quote, and the mundaneness of it is what people like about Be Real because it sort of strips it all back. The fascinating thing is it was founded in France in 2020 by a former GoPro employee. It's now 
has an estimated 20 million installs and 3 million active users. And best of all, it is valued at $600 million thanks to a $30 million investment from Andreessen Horowitz, the big uh, tech uh, investment firm. So go figure. So what's your username? <laughs> I like Mike. <laughs> Be less like Mike. Thank God we came of the age before this was the primary way that people got to know one another. I mean, this is terrifying. It was so much easier when we just met people drunkenly in bars. Really got a much clearer sense of who they really were. Yeah, talking about being real. That was being real. Exactly, exactly. And then it was being real the next day when it was really awkward. <laughs> you couldn't ghost. You just had to like, you know, decide if you're going to chew your arm off and leave it there like a coyote and try and try and escape. Exactly. Well, Michael and I are being dilettantes. Some people at least are saving the world. And we've got Marie Brenner here to talk about some true heroes, true American heroes specifically, true New York heroes, the staff of uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital in the salad days of the pandemic, which is to say like the earliest moments of lockdown. These are all addressed at length in Marie's new book, which is called The Desperate Hours, One Hospital's Fight to Save a City on the Pandemic's Front Lines. Uh, Marie spent 18 months with access to the entire New York Presbyterian Hospital system. And she tells the story of all the doctors and residents and researchers and nurses and supply chain folks who are trying to save lives all across the five boroughs. Marie Brenner is, has written over half a dozen books. She's a writer at large for Vanity Fair. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker, contributing editor at New York Magazine. Uh, one of our favorite people. Welcome, Marie. So, Marie, you spent 18 months with access to the New York Presbyterian Hospital System. How did you get that access, and what was the process like of of, com of tackling this huge project and reporting? It was extraordinary. The CEO of the hospital, quite unexpectedly, is an amateur historian. And in the middle of the pandemic, he turned to his wife, who he had met when he was a resident at an ICU at Columbia, and said, this just has to be written about what we're going through. Did you have any hesitation about taking this on? Oh, I did. The entire sort of medical world is, was completely mysterious to me. But the part of me that was so drawn to it, and I didn't hesitate for a moment to say, yes, I would do it, was the very fact that it was such an extraordinary human drama, an epic of New York. The city has never really been the same since. And at the point where I jumped into this, it was June of 2020 when we were still in the middle of it. So tell us about some of your characters and how they came into focus. It was an incredible experience. I began it as a chronology. I wanted to, first they were, they were so nervous about having a reporter in the hospital, they tried to insist that I do it all on Zoom. And of course that wasn't going to happen. I relived the pandemic as it had rolled through. And I started in Bronxville at the small community of hospital at Lawrence. And this is where they had had the first patient, the lawyer, Lawrence Garbuz, who lived in New Rochelle. And gathered around the conference table were about 10 or 12 people, the chief nurse, the head of the ICU, uh, the remarkable Dr. Zenia Frisbee, and they began talking about this and it was so clear how uncomfortable they were and how terrified about what they had been through. And at first it was incredibly difficult for them to talk. And then suddenly there were some tears and there was you know, terror and there was laughter and the urgency of the stories became so overwhelming 
that I stayed for hours and hours and walked out uh, into the Bronxville sunshine that summer day and thought, my God, this is really an epic of New York. Every class and cast was even in that even in that little community hospital. Extraordinary people like the um, physician's assistant Jessica Foreman, who had volunteered and had trained herself to be an ICU nurse, who was this incredibly empathic young woman who just sent her daughter away and gave over her life for months and months to taking care of patients. And of course, Dr. Frisbee, who's a major character in the book, who I discovered this entire hidden background she had of, you know, coming out of the Southwest and having had a child when she was in high school and just being determined through sheer grit to get to medical school. I mean, that was the first hospital. It was just irresistible. Your book covers an 18-month period of time in the pandemic, but where do you leave off? Many people think the pandemic is over. Some think we're still in the middle of it. Where do you fall in terms of that conversation? And what about the doctors and the medical professionals that you cover in the book? Well, it's a very good question. It was an extraordinary reporting experience because as the book was conceived that summer of 2020, uh, most people I was talking to and most in the New York Presbyterian system thought that they had more or less, that the pandemic was more or less over and that they were in a kind of settling in phase where the worst of the surge was behind them. And the way the book was conceived was that it was a drama of those first two and a half months in New York, the March, April, and into May a bit when the hospital was overwhelmed and they went from three patients in the first week of March to 2,500 patients by the end of that month and had not enough doctors, not enough nurses, not enough supplies. But then as I started reporting, it just kept going. And, you know, then, you know, we got into Omicron and we got the Delta variant. And so then there was this um, extraordinary act two, which really came as I was already reporting. And so I was in the middle of the story. Uh, it was really, I we thought that it was act three when I started. In fact, it was the height of act two. And for the next months, it became Act three, I decided I would end the book when the vaccines arrived because I wanted to essentially write the history of 2020, which started with the rocket that came at New York and ended with the vaccines being delivered to Weill Cornell on December the 15th. This was for me an extraordinary tonic because Michael Ashley, one of the great lessons that I take away from this is we live, first of all, in New York, in the greatest city in the world, in our hospital systems, in Brooklyn, in Queens, in lower Manhattan, all of these are part of the New York Presbyterian system. There is a class, there are all classes and all castes who bonded together and came together like a team. These are incredible people. For me, the, the great takeaway is that in a crisis, which is always a crucible of you know, how we rise to an occasion or how we don't, 
this kind of emergency crucible became a masterclass in humanity. Not only do you cover a lot of acts of heroism in this book, but the way that you were there to bear witness to this and record it and share it with your readers is another act of heroism. And we are so fortunate to have this marvelous book, The Desperate Hours, One Hospital's Fight to Save a City on the Pandemic's Front Lines by Marie Brenner. And it just came out this summer. It is the ultimate summer read. Thank you so much, Ashley and Michael, for having me on. Thanks so much, Marie. You're wonderful. Thank you, Marie. Well, that was that was harrowing. You know what's harrowing? I'm just going to say... Here at Airmail, it's been noted that we have a fondness for Italy and all things Italian, right? Confirmed. We like to espouse the the wonders of Italy. But for the first time, I think we are now going to tell you a beautiful, idyllic island in Italy that you should avoid this summer. Finally, someplace I'm not supposed to go. Where is it? It is uh, one of the Aeolian Islands off the coast of Sicily, the volcanic uh, string of islands that are beautiful. I happen to actually be fortunate enough to see all of them last summer um, when I was tootling around on a, on a boat there. And Panarea is the smallest of these islands. It's a, it's a tiny little island. It's also super beautiful. It's had a, a reputation across the decades as a place where, you know, most of the Romans and Milanese, they escaped. They're, all the islands are impossibly beautiful. They're part of a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So they're, they're very, they're very quiet until recently, as Elena Claverino report. Once again, if there's a party, Elena will find it. And it turns out that the debauchery is going down on Panarea this summer. Yeah. As I said, Johnny Agnelli, Francis Bacon were regulars on the island. But in the last few years, Rowdy teens in the hundreds have started to descend on the island. And most of them come for the first two weeks of August when people are are known to effectively take over Panarea. And its quaintness means parents and whole families from Venice, Greece, and Rome feel safe sending their kids there because they feel like, well, they're going to be on an island. How much trouble can they get into? And it's usually these kids' first taste of unsupervised freedom. But the trouble is, as, as Anna reports, it sort of becomes Fort Lauderdale spring break on this beautiful Italian idyllic island. So if you've got a share book there in August, you might want to rethink that. Good to know. Speaking of things that are terrifying and things that you can't take your eyes off, James Walcott is here this week to talk about two things. One, one of my favorite movies ever from 1995, Heat, which was directed and written by Michael Mann, starred Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Val Kilmer, Ashley Judd, and Natalie Portman. But why James is also here is because Michael Mann, along with Meg Gardner, has a novel out this week called Heat 2, which picks up the story of Heat. We've got James Wolcott. Jim, as he's known to his intimates like us, his best friends. Uh, he's a columnist for Airmail. He's written several books, including the memoir Lucking Out and Critical Mass. One of the best thinkers we know. We're so fortunate to have him here. As always, welcome, Jim. We have not heard much about Heat since the 1990s when the original Michael Mann film came out. What's the latest and greatest development? Is there a Heat 2 happening? Tell us what we need to know. Well, there is the Heat 2 novel, which is being released in August, coinciding with a new super version of the original Heat with even more commentary, additional scenes and deleted scenes. And, you know, it's like a big package. Uh, And there have been numerous packages 
he too does the novel does have all the makings of another movie i mean it just set everything up uh for flashbacks and flash forwards Jim, just to, to flash back for a second, I still meet people who have never seen Heat, probably as you do, and you do such a brilliant job in your in the lead of your story, like locating why Heat is such a fantastic film and basically why its influence across the screen has just grown over the last 20 years, 30 years, and seen everything from The Dark Knight to, to, to other films, right? Oh yeah, no, it's it's a it's a huge influence. I mean, there's a movie called uh, Den of Thieves with Gerard Butler that just, I mean, it's almost blatant, but but in a way, very, you know, it's it's so blatant in what in its homages to Heat that you don't mind it because they're not trying to hide it. It has absolutely phenomenal set pieces that have stood the test of time, including a shootout in front of a bank that is like a model of action filmmaking. And uh, the influence has also been on a lot of television shows. I mean, I, you know, I, I see it on shows, you know, everything from Bosch to, uh, you know, anything set in LA derives from it. And, and yet, as you know, it didn't receive a single Academy Award, right? Nomination. No, the Academy, uh, the Academy completely overlooked it. I think the Academy slotted it as simply a genre of film. And as the Academy tends to do, I haven't gone back and looked at the other Academy uh, nominations, but I don't think uh, Collateral, which is now also considered a classic, you know, Tom Cruise's best bad guy role, Michael Mann film, I I don't recall that being showered with nominations. And uh, the Miami Vice movie, the Miami Vice movie was considered kind of a muddle when it was released. Its reputation has grown and grown and grown. So take us into Heat 2 now, the, the, the novel he's done with Meg Gardner. Where does he take us and, and, and where are we going in, 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 as you call it, the Maniverse? It's a prequel and a sequel. So we go back to Chicago, 1988, where Vincent Hanna is, a, you know, a detective. He's investigating a, a series of home invasions that are particularly vicious because they're not just break-ins and robberies, they also involve rape and murder. So they're particularly vicious. Meanwhile, in Chicago, Neil McCauley and uh, his crew are pulling off a heist. And so the prequel is setting up everything that happens before Heat. The sequel is in Heat, and I don't think this is much of a spoiler, but in Heat, the only one of Neil's crew who survives is uh, Chris, played by Val Kilmer. He manages to get out of town. But in the movie, we don't know how he managed to get out of town and where he ended up. And he, too, answers all that and more. Uh, He has a whole series of uh, criminal exploits ahead of him. I can't wait to read this book because I, I think that, as you said, heat is its influence just is so propulsive now within culture. Is he going to make a real Heat 2 film? Well, he's talked about it. You know, he's doing, I think at this moment, he's uh, doing Ferrari with Adam Driver. You know, Heat 2 as a movie would require not just a huge expense, but you've got some very interesting casting you have to do because you have to cast a younger uh, Neil McCauley, who was played by Robert De Niro, and a younger um, Vince Hanna, 
who was played by Al Pacino. Now, and this is not a case like the Irishman. I don't think it would work to de-age them. I think you'd have to cast new people. And of course, uh, the other the other thing is Val Kilmer is not capable of of working, you know, because of his illness. Uh, Val Kilmer could not reprise his role. So I, I'm not sure how that would work, Jim. You 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 talked in you talk in 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 your review about quote unquote the maniverse. How would you define the man, uh, Michael Mann's maniverse, and and what 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 is what is a, what is a man film? It's a world in which the men are incredibly driven. They're either driven by you know their criminality, or they're driven by the pursuit of criminals, or they're driven by other things that are that have you know, just passions. They're very flawed, but they're very locked tight. These are not people who are going to talk about their problems. But another part of the Maniverse is that it isn't just about themes, it's the look. Uh, Michael Mann is is like a pioneer in using digital technology and different types of digital technology and lenses to shoot very late at night and create a sense of that you're in this world, you're that you're in this world, and it's crackling. You know, it isn't just that the themes are there, but it's also like a whole look. There's a look to a Michael Mann movie, and you can see it in the opening scene of Collateral when the taxi is going against the skyline of L.A. And it's like nobody gets that kind of look of L.A. at night. Jim, thank you so much for this. And if you've never seen the original Heat, not like uh, I'm talking about myself or anything, by all means, this is a great one to watch this weekend or anytime, really, just in time to get the new Heat 2 novel by Michael Mann. So thank you so much, Jim. Thank you. Okay, so if you've seen Heat, you know it's crazy action-filled by one of the great directors. And we've got another hero of ours this week, Alan Swebel. I hope you know Alan's name. He was one of the founding writers of Saturday Night Live, wrote there from 1975 to 1980. He wrote the Belushi Samurai sketch. He created the Gilda Radner characters, Roseanne Rosanna Dana, as well as Emily Latella. And he also was the co-creator of It's Gary Shandling Show, and he's worked on Curb Your Enthusiasm. If you can't tell, the man is hip. He knows what's down. He's been part of the pop culture for, you know, a good 40 years now. But he's here this week because he's now wondering, he was hip, but his hipness, as he says, has gone back to being a noun. And let's bring him on to have Alan explain. Okay, so take us back, Alan, to the summer of 1975. It was the month of July. Lauren Michaels had seen you perform stand-up at a New York comedy club. What happened next? He liked my material, wanted to see more. I was a dreadful comic. Uh, I had written for a thousand, thousand, about a hundred Catskill comedians uh, for $7 a joke. That's what they were paying me. I took all the jokes they wouldn't buy from me. I made it into a stand-up act for myself to advertise the way I, I wrote. And I went to a couple of clubs in New York City, one of them called Catch a Rising Star. And um, when, it was, when, I, when Lorne wanted to see material... I typed up about 1,100 jokes, and I came in, and um, I had a meeting with him in New York City, and I had this tome, you know, and I gave it to him, and he uh, opened the book, and he read one joke, and he went, very good, very good, and, and then he closed the book. <laughs> okay, so, you know, I had my interview, but he, you know, the, the one joke, I, I he was able to tell back then, He, I think he 
hired Franken and Davis as a writing team based on one joke they did in their stand-up act. And, you know, Lorne just wanted to see the sensibility of the people that he was considering. And he knew very, very quickly whether or not uh, they brought something that he wanted. Take us back to Lorne's office in your first meeting. What were you wearing and who was surrounding you? Who are some of the characters that you encountered? Well, it was the first day of work and I'm a good Jewish guy. So I bought a Brooks Brothers shirt and I um, and chinos. I was wearing chinos and, um, you know, to look good for my first day. And I walked in and I looked around and I saw Belushi and Gilda and Chevy and Dan Aykroyd and Lorraine. And um, they were all in jeans and <laughs> T-shirts and shit. So I was overdressed for my first meeting. I had never seen the kind of comedy that they were doing before. I was totally, totally at that point unfamiliar with Second City or the Groundlings or any of those improv places. And they were just before the meeting meeting started, they were doing characters. They were bouncing off each other, you know, ideas and creating little scenes. And it was really pretty fantastic. I, I, I said, boy, I can't believe I'm going to be a part of this thing. But I got a little spooked by it. Because I was a joke writer. I joke, I wrote for guys who, you know, comedians who tell jokes, you know, not scenes. But I learned. And suddenly you were not only a successful television writer, but you were also very cool. What was your life like at that time? I became hip overnight. You know, I was part of this younger generation that was doing our kind of humor and appealing to people our age, people who went to Woodstock, people who bought the Woodstock album. (laughs) It was really cool to be a part of this. And um, I I was considered hip because of association. It was an adjective that was never applied to me before. I feel like you got rid of those chinos pretty fast. I still have them. But some of the, you know, the scenes you say, like, all of a sudden you go from taking the train in from your parents' house in La- on the Long Island Railroad to this thing. And all of a sudden, like, here you are at, at Nights at Studio 54. You meet all four Beatles. You're sharing a joint with Keith Richards. Candace Bergen's name's in your address book. You're even catching a, a football from Fran Tarkenton. That is the definition of hip in the mid-70s, right? Yes. SNL became the place to be, and your association with it opened up doors that were unbelievable. So you go from 1976, 77, you are in the epicenter of HIP, and all of a sudden, take us to July 2022. What happens to HIP? HIP became a noun, okay? (laughs) It used to be an adjective, you know, an adjective that uh, opened a lot of doors for you. It was the source of all sorts of adulation. It was, uh, you know, Emmys, and there was uh, people who would applaud you, and you can get a good table anywhere. A lot of college dates and uh, people would applaud just hearing the introduction, what my contributions to the show was. And now somehow, some way I turned 72 and hip became a noun as in, oh, God, (laughs) your hip is screwed up. That's why you're hurting. That's why you're limping. We got to get you a new hip. So (laughs) I have on my left hip. It's not mine anymore. It's, it's not my natural one. It's um, it's an artificial hip. Alan, you worked with some of the all-time greats on SNL. Who are some of your favorite performers? Well, I would have to think that Larry David, when I did Curb, and he's my good buddy. Um, Billy Crystal, who I've written a lot with and for a movie and a Broadway play called 700 Sundays. You know, I've been really lucky, really, really Martin Short. You know, I co-wrote his Broadway play with him. The years that I was there, 
people like uh, Eric Idle would host the show. Buck Henry, I collaborated with, and he became an incredible mentor. You know, the guy who uh, wrote The Graduate, my God. So that opened a thousand doors and it went from there. Gary Shandling, you know, I, I created a show with Gary that lasted four years called It's Gary Shandling Show. And um, so what it did was the people that I didn't meet when I was on SNL, because I didn't meet Gary then, but the SNL credit gave me a validation. All right, Alan, more soon, more to come, and you'll be back on the show before we know it. Until then, we wish you a productive and happy weekend. Take care, guys. Yeah, Alan, you're not just hip. You're not terminally hip. You're perpetually hip. Oh, my God. So it just keeps going. The hipness just keeps rolling, right? Exactly. You got a hip infusion. <laughs> well, it's that titanium. There's a leak. That's what you tell people. You got a hip infusion. Wow. Thanks so much for having me, guys. All right. Take Thanks, care. Alan. Have a great day. Michael, I know you're going to recommend that we all go back and watch Alan's episodes of SNL, but... That's a good idea. It's not a bad idea, but yeah. you might perhaps have something else you can recommend to us to enjoy over this weekend. I do. It also involves a little bit of time travel, and it's something truly lovely, mesmerizing and revealing all at the same time. It's called The Last Movie Stars, and it's a new documentary series about two of Hollywood's most famous and most honored actors, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, and it's showing now on HBO Max. The series is directed by Ethan Hawke, who took on the project at the request of the Newman and Woodward children, and it's their participation and the sharing of some hard truths, such as how Newman and Woodward's affair broke up her first marriage and that family, which make it just one of the many elements that gives the series so much emotional energy and depth. The other energy and so much of the film's power for me comes from this unbelievably beautiful, exhaustive in the best way, assemblage of clips of their performances where you're reminded over and over, not just of the power of their, their, their creativity, but that Woodward achieved fame before Newman, earning an Oscar for Three Faces of Eve, all before she stepped away to raise their family. And what's also cool is to bring the past to life. Hawk cleverly relies on a cavalcade of actor friends with George Clooney, filling in for the voice of Newman, reading passages from his interviews and diaries, and Laura Linney doing the same for Joanne Woodward. So listen, if you're a fan of movies and great acting and wanting to know how the magic happens, don't miss The Last Movie Stars, now on HBO Max. It's an enchanting ride. And Ashley? Hashtag charming. Are you watching Irma Vep on HBO Max? I have not started Irma Vep. Ooh, j'adorissimo. You're going to love it. Okay, so Irma Vep is a new drama. Uh, the first season is recently premiered on HBO Max. It stars Alicia Vikander as an American movie star who has broken up with her boyfriend and is disillusioned by the Hollywood scene. So she comes to France to star in a film called Irma Vep, which is a remake of a French silent film classic called Les Vampires. Anyway, she begins to blend fact and fiction in her reality. And it becomes kind of difficult to figure out what's real, what's fake, what's happening, what's not, what's on screen, what's in person. Um, it's very fascinating. Anyway, it's great great series full of lots of drama and intrigue and a great performance by Alicia Vikander. But what's really interesting is it's directed by Olivier Assayas, the French director. The interesting thing about this is that Olivier Assayas has famously directed the original version of this this project as well. It was a feature film that came that came out in the 1990s and it starred Maggie Chung who 
became his wife and they had a fairly acrimonious breakup. And he revisits that love story in the new HBO Max series. So anyway, I highly recommend it. It's called Irma Vep on HBO. It's fantastic. Alicia Vikander is great. And certainly go back and watch the original with Maggie Chung as well. I like it. All these um, films, whether it's Jim Walcott talking about he too, the last movie star, this, they're all sending us back to check out some originals, some things we've never seen before. So in the long, hot days of summer, it's good to have that extra list of, of things on your list. Great. Well, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you back here next week for another episode. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Morning Meaning is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitelli. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks again for joining us.